Hello. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week is a listener request. Yes. Bill and Donovan hit us up on Instagram, and they requested the case of Peter and Christine Dimitar. Uh-huh. So in 1973, fashion model Christine Dimitar was found murdered oh, in no. the double garage of her Mississauga, Ontario home. Her Hungarian real estate developer husband, Peter, was immediately the first one under suspicion. Uh-huh. So this story is pretty wild. Uh-huh, there uh-huh. are explosions and shootouts and espionage the fall of the hungarian aristocracy oh my god war i don't think you're gonna really be able to guess what's going on <laughs> all right great well we also had to have a pretty intense mission to even find the book you used this week yeah the book is out of print uh-huh. and there's no you know kindle version of it but uh-huh. we did end up tracking it down in this really epic journey to the library <laughs> <laughs> the deep depths of the central library in downtown los angeles right so this book is titled By Persons Unknown, The Strange Death of Christine Dimitar by George Jonas and Barbara Emil. And it's fantastic. I love it. But before we get started, we want to thank Laura and Fox for signing up for Muriel's Murders Patreon. Welcome to the party. If you like what we're doing and want to support the podcast, you can either rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can share this podcast with the people in your life or online. Or you can sign up for our Patreon, dog. And then you'll get some bonus episodes. Yeah. All right. This is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably do a little cursing and joking. So if you're sensitive to that, please keep that in mind. All right, Nikki. Are you ready to hear a story? No. Okay. Let's get started. tingling sensation where I'm just so curious to know where you're actually going to begin this tale. Okay, we are beginning uh-huh. in World War II <laughs> and the fall of Hungary. Of course, of course we are. <laughs> but it'll, it'll be quick and, uh, and I think it's actually pretty interesting. I'm sure it is. Okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> so on January 2nd, 1945, a 12-year-old boy named Peter Dimitar hid in a bomb shelter under the luxury apartment complex where he lived with his family in the heart of Budapest. Mm -hmm. So with his older brother being killed in battle just a few days earlier, Peter, the baby of the family, was now left with his aging father, reserve cavalry major Andrew Dimitar, and his highborn mother, who was the cousin to the regent of Hungary, which is kind of like the default leader of something has happened. Mm-hmm. It's like kind of he was leading Hungary at the time. Okay, great. So he was like middle management, and suddenly they're like, "All right, step up to the CEO table." Right. So briefly, he was the region of Hungary. Okay. Uh, he was also an Air Force lieutenant and a nobleman, so he's part of the aristocracy. Got it. His name was Mikulos Horty. Love it. Uh, so he was with his mother and his father, and about four hundred other Hungarian people 
in a basement while Europe burned around them. Wow. God. So German allied Hungary was under siege by Soviet and Romanian forces in what would later be called the Battle of Budapest. Mm -hmm. At this point, the city had been under siege for seven days when a Russian bomber hit a train full of munitions near Peter's extravagant apartment complex. That exploded, and then that explosion collapsed the entire building, burying the bomb shelter. Oh, damn. So, he blew up a train full of bombs? And blew up like everything. Collapsed like, you know, four stories into this drastic bomb shelter. So Peter and his mother along with 23 others, were dug out of the rubble by mm -hmm. rescuers about two and a half days later. Whoa. 400 others, including Peter's dad, Major Andrew Demeter, were crushed to death. Yeah. The siege continued for another month before the city surrendered unconditionally. Just brutal. Right. And so at this point, Hungary was in ruins. Inflation uh -huh. made cash pretty much worthless. The survivors of the siege were starving and the aristocracy to which Peter was born was in a really bad spot mm -hmm. with Major Andrew dead, their home destroyed and their money relatively worthless. Peter's mom was forced to take work as a maid somewhere in Budapest while Peter was shipped off to live with family in the countryside outside the city. So really briefly and yeah. generally under Soviet control, people with at the time mm -hmm. in Hungary and then elsewhere in the Soviet Union, people with aristocratic pasts or roots, you know, noble families mm -hmm. were targeted. So estates and land were seized, titles were stripped from people, and then like formerly bougie people were monitored and demoted from high level positions. So a right. lot of the time they were assigned, you know, custodial roles and, and, and things like that. Right. right. And this lady is now, you know, a house cleaner. Or exactly. Whatever. Right. Yeah. So, for instance, Peter got into a Hungarian university after the war, but he was expelled in 1953 after authorities found out about his mother's connection to the former Hungarian oh, wow, regent. Wow, so yeah. like he had to go then start driving trucks. So he started mm -hmm. driving trucks in 1954. And the whole time he's longing to escape to Vienna, right? Mm -hmm. Vienna at the time, right, it borders Hungary and it was occupied by U.S. and Great Britain. So it was thought of as this gateway into the West, mm -hmm. even though it's like lots of technically occupied countries and stuff like that. By December of 1954, Peter had turned 21 and was called to serve a compulsory two years in the Soviet military. And again, because of his parents' former social status, Peter would 100% more than likely be sorted into one of the worst positions that they could give in the military, huh. which was typically some sort of work camp situation. Right, right, right. right. So Peter decided this is it i've got two weeks before i have to go do this thing that i might not even survive yeah so i'm going to make the dash to escape to vienna i'm going to try to escape to the west so on the border between hungary and austria there were armed guards barbed wire trenches there were landmines like yeah. all kinds of the classic nightmare shit was over there well, that's intense because Budapest and Vienna are close together. I mean, we were you and I went to Vienna and we we're like, I don't know, should we take like a day trip to Budapest? Yeah, it was only like an 
I think it was like an hour. It was super quick. Was really yeah. Close, yeah. Yeah. It's just the border is yeah. just heavily, heavily guarded right. to keep people from trying to get into Vienna. Yeah. And Peter tried twice to cross the border and didn't make it. Mm -hmm. But he succeeded on his third try through a Russian checkpoint. He spoke German really well mm -hmm. um, and was able to just sort of pass somehow to be like, I should be in Vienna. And they're like, all right, go for it. Yeah, it's like when you try, <laughs> I don't know, get into a club or something you don't belong into. You're yeah. just like, yeah, I belong here. Right. What? I mean, yeah, no. I don't even need to show you my ID. Right. So like he if, totally he totally made it through. Yeah. Uh, and he made it through just two weeks before he would have to serve those two years in the forced labor camp. Wow. After that, Peter applied for asylum at the American embassy in Vienna. Mm. So in Vienna, he lived in a refugee camp for a while. And he worked part-time as a reporter and also shoveled coal out of freight trains for $2 a day. And in the summer of 1956 he got into a horrific car accident. He was rushed to the hospital and he ended up being in a coma for two days. Damn. And after he woke up, he was like, F it, I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> yeah, Canada's the move? Yeah, so he bounced to Canada. <laughs> He's just like, this sucks over here. I'm constantly either getting buried by buildings or then having to dig coal out of trains. Yeah, so. I finally take a car ride somewhere. It seems fun. I go into a coma. This sucks. How about a different continent? I'm going to Canada, baby. I can relate to that. So eventually he got his mother out of Hungary and they lived together in Toronto, Ontario. Mm -hmm. With him doing odd jobs and speaking exactly zero English. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he eventually landed a pretty good gig working as a chauffeur for the American consulate. So he was making okay money. They were surviving. They were living in an apartment. His mom had a lot of health problems, mm -hmm. so that was an issue. But, you know, they were surviving together. Around 1960, a company called Continental Collectors took out a bunch of ads in Hungarian newspapers targeting refugees living in Canada who wanted to safely send cash to over, overseas to relatives uh -huh. that were still living in Hungary. So using forged paperwork, Continental Collectors scammed thousands of dollars off of the people who responded to the ads. Those dicks. So, <laughs> so no one was ever caught uh -huh. for this crime. But Peter Demeter was named as one of the main suspects. Oh, yeah? So he was scamming <laughs> his own people, huh? He was, like, named by name in a bunch of Hungarian newspapers. But the problem was yeah. is they couldn't really prove it was him. There was uh -huh. just not enough evidence. Yeah. And the money was actually transferred mm -hmm. to places in Hungary, right? So that transfer worked. Did happen. Right, but because there was no communication between, you couldn't really communicate between Canada and Hungary at the time, uh -huh. there was no way to verify with all certainty uh -huh. that those people did or did not receive the money. So it was just a kind of elaborate scam that had like one legit transfer point, uh -huh. but then probably someone else wired the money back, like a double person scheme. Got it. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. So they couldn't prove without a shadow of the doubt that the people didn't get the money, even though people are saying they didn't get the money. Uh -huh, you know uh -huh. what I'm saying? Yeah. So this guy is either uh, just a cold asshole or just uh, the fall guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, so regardless, in 1962, Peter Dimitar, chauffeur and handyman, had $20,000. <laughs> 
right. and that's about a hundred and eighty-two thousand dollars in today's money. Uh-huh. Uh, he had a he had twenty thousand dollars to found his first legitimate business venture, uh-huh. and that was a property development company called Eden Gardens Limited. Sorry, how much money did they say Hungarian refugees got scammed out of? Uh, they didn't say specifically, but uh-huh. thousands of dollars. Okay. It was a lot of people. Okay. So he went from being completely broke to being accused of stealing thousands of dollars to suddenly having tens of thousands of dollars to start a business. Right. They were like, wow, <laughs> chauffeur to like <laughs> land develop, like real estate developer. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. So Peter's mother died shortly after Eden Gardens was founded and Peter was left with this tiny family circle. His cousin and his wife, Stephen and Marjorie Dimiter, who also lived in Toronto, his best friend and fellow Hungarian, Chaba Salati, and by 1967, his own wife, Vietnamese model, Christine. So in 1970, Christine gave birth to their only child, mm-hmm. a daughter named Andrea, completing their little family. And by 1973, Christine would be dead. Damn. <sighs> All right. <laughs> She's a Viennese model. <laughs> I, feel, I mean, I feel like I have a relationship with this person because she uh, is, is that her on the cover of the book? Yeah. Yeah. So the book is really striking and I just um, wasn't sure if she was the murderer or the, or the uh, murdered. In well, this story. she has a really interesting story according uh-huh. to the book uh-huh. and according, there's pictures in the book of, of her like modeling portfolio. Yeah. She's really a beautiful woman yeah. and people loved her. She mm-hmm. had this really warm, vulnerable personality and she modeled and she's beautiful, but yeah. she just had a flair for the dramatic in this way that was a little too campy for the way that modeling agencies were going. So mm. in the 60s, right, yeah. this is how it was explained. And I think I, I kind of get it just from uh-huh. looking at in my life, looking at fashion stuff. Yeah. It's like in the 60s, it's more camp, right? Mm-hmm. People were doing adding little wiglets and beehives right yeah, and yeah. cat eye makeup and all yeah. this kind of stuff and as they were moving into the 70s more naturalistic mm-hmm. styles were coming into she was play. like i'm still trying to have some fun over here she was like always still uh-huh. like a, the idea is that her career didn't progress as far as it might have been able to progress just because she had a flair for the dramatic so she would always show up in, in uh, photo shoots and stuff, trying to do her own makeup and making it more extreme and having little uh, hair wigs added to her and extreme makeup and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, well, I mean, in this picture, she does have a very like a- aggressive sort of, I don't know, thundercat personality. Right, or that's exactly, it was just a tiny bit dated for yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah. And I think her biggest gig that she got was in Toronto. She got an ad campaign and it was her dressed up as like a super sexy spear carrying cave woman. Yeah, that's what she looks like. Yeah, yeah totally. And it was a car commercial right. and she was everywhere uh-huh, on uh-huh, every billboard uh-huh. and she's just making this snarly face and has this sexy outfit on you. Uh-huh. Well, I guess I could have known it was her who died considering the subtitle of the book that's directly under her face is The Strange Death of Christine D- demon tear so it's like don't judge a book by its cover but you might want to read the subtitle maybe you can get a little sense of what's going on that's my boy he's a detective <laughs> so right. by 1973 the demon tears 
Also, I'm just going to be really real. Uh-huh. I'm trying my best to pronounce everything. There's a lot of Hungarian names uh-huh. and I've been Googling them and playing the little sound bite of how to, oh, <laughs> how to pronounce them. it. But uh, it's very funny for some reason to me to say Peter Demeter, which is <laughs> how I kept saying it when I was typing it. It in is kind of spelled like that. Right. It's So Demeter is mm-hmm. the closer to the pronunciation. So I'm going to try, but sometimes I'll mess up. Okay, okay. so whatever. That's okay. So by 1973, the Demeters lived in a beautiful renovated farmhouse with a large backyard pool in Mississauga, Ontario. And that's about 15 minutes from downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. It's basically included in the greater Toronto area. Got it. Peter... Now, a handsome, youthful-looking 40-year-old dude did well for himself financially. The couple owned luxury cars. They took multiple vacations a year, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He Mm -hmm. did very well. On the morning of July 18th, 1973, Christine woke up to a house full of guests. So one of Peter's friends was visiting from Europe, and she had came with her daughters, some of her daughter's friends, mm-hmm. and then the 16-year-old daughter of one of his friends from Vienna. So a basically bucket of teenage girls. Uh-huh. Like, just like a slumber party. All right. So the girls run downstairs. Christine makes everyone breakfast. And then the girls decide they have to go to the store, the mall, and they all need moccasins. That's, <laughs> that's like... We're in Canada. Let's have fuzzy things on our feet. Right. It's like, and it's also really, I guess, trendy at the time. Mm-hmm. So if they were going to go back to their schools overseas, they wanted to all have moccasins. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Peter decided to take the girls to the mall, right? Uh-huh. He says, I'll drive. Let me be in charge. And Christine stays back at the house with Andrea. She cleans up the dishes and does stuff like that. Uh So Christine is this, she was 33 years old at the time, slender, tall, blonde, tan. She was absolutely beautiful. She was known for skipping lunch religiously Mm -hmm. and swimming laps every day in the family pool. She's a really regimented lady Mm -hmm. um she was born in austria in 1940 to older parents just like peter and was an only child so peter was the youngest by about nine years i think in his family and so he was also similar to that race as an only child yeah right right so her parents ended up sending her to a catholic boarding school to get a formal education but she ended up dropping out at the age of 17 married her first husband and gave birth to a baby two months later so she was doing her own thing <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the couple divorced in 1963 and her husband kept their son who she never saw again while christine left to become a fashion model in europe she spoke french german italian and english and she had tons of fancy boyfriends. I think one of her boyfriends also dated Sophia Loren at some point. So she's just like completely a fabulous MFer. Yeah. Globe trotting, yeah. speaking every sexy European language. I believe she was a part of the original Jet Setters crowd. You know? <laughs> yeah, it seems like that. Just out here looking like Barbarella. Right, exactly. And in 1967, she was living in Vienna and dating a movie producer named Franz. Uh, her modeling career had stalled out, uh-huh. and so she was kind of just trying to figure out what her next move was mm-hmm. and shooting a bit part in one of Franz's films. And that's when Peter Demeter visited the set and they met. Mm-hmm. So 
Christine left her movie producer boyfriend right away. She hooked up with Peter. They dated briefly, and then she followed him to Canada in February of 1967. So within like two months or something like that. Mm. So he must have had some pretty good game. Yeah, he was he's a handsome dude. Yeah, and like and very aggressive. And stuff. Yeah, that's maybe you know also <laughs> not great sometimes. Uh, so they were had this sort of whirlwind courtship Uh right so she moved in with him fairly quickly and then they were married that same year in Mm. november so about 10 years or 10 months later so back to toronto to the mississauga home where christine is kind of keeping house and hanging out with neighbors yeah by 4 30 in the afternoon the teenage girl crew returned home very disappointed the girls hadn't found their perfect trendy moccasins Mm -hmm. one of them did the other one didn't everyone was in shambles, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, the shopping trip has, had been a bust. Uh huh, just a huge tragedy. Right. So Christine was waiting for everyone with this elaborate German themed dinner and homemade strudel for dessert. Everyone sits down for dinner, but unfortunately, dinner's just kind of tense. It's summertime mm-hmm. and this old, beautiful, renovated farmhouse doesn't have AC. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just too hot inside the farmhouse. Everyone's sweating. The girls are thinking about the moccasins. There's some <laughs> tension, right? Uh-huh. Christine seemed really worn out. And Peter just picked at her the entire time, which is he's known to do. He just picks on her and it makes everything really awkward. It was just not a great time. So right? she's like a beautiful international supermodel, speaks a million languages and cooks a huge dinner and now is just getting complained at. Right. He's got a problem. Okay. So they finish dinner and after the dinner, the girls want one more shot at trying to find these moccasins. I think it's around (laughs) 6 30 PM. They really want them. Right. Yeah. And their mother says, you know, I'll take them. Let me take them out. And Peter says, no, you're my guests. I will drive you. I will Mm -hmm. take you all. Mm -hmm. Right. And he's saying that as Christine's coming out with this homemade strudel. So she's like, well, why don't we all have dessert first and then you go. And he gets super aggressive and he says, no, you know, Christine, you're going to stay here and put the baby to bed. Andrea's tired. She's about three years old. And we're going to go. I'm going to take the girls. Dessert should be enjoyed, not rushed. It's stupid to do it beforehand. We'll be back at 945 on the dot Mm -hmm. for coffee and dessert. Mm -hmm. Christine's a little put out by this, but she's like, whatever. So he starts shepherding all of the girls into his Mercedes. And then when Christine asks Peter to leave their dog with her at the house, he snaps at her in German, scoops up the dog, and then just leaves Christine alone with Andrea. So he's like, no, you stay here. You do this. We're leaving. I'm taking the dog. (laughs) Great guy. Yeah. I just picture this as like 15, 16-year-old girls, like a clown car jam-packed with teenagers. I think it was six. So it was a like a <laughs> yeah. big Mercedes, uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. and, and they but they were like crammed in there. Okay, six all together. So the crew goes, they get their moccasins, they get all their things together, they pile back into the Mercedes, they drive back to the house in Mississauga, and they return from the mall just exactly at nine forty five PM. And Peter is a time 
captain. Uh-huh, you know, uh-huh. before they left earlier in the day, he had his friend sync her watch with his watch, so they would have exactly the same time. <laughs> so he's very like hyper focused on being prompt. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And when they get back to the house, he literally was like nine forty five on the dot. He announced it to the crowd. <laughs> It's so annoying. So Peter pulled the Mercedes into the dark driveway and clicked the automatic door button. The door rolled up in the car's headlights to reveal a massive amount of blood <gasps> running down the garage and into the driveway. Oh my God. Christine was lying face down on the cement floor, just covered in blood, while Andrea was inside watching TV alone. Peter called 911. Police got to the scene. Fairly quickly. Yeah. And one of the officers, police superintendent, William J. Taggart, took in the scene. He's the big guy who's in charge of the investigation. So the back of Christine's skull had been crushed. The autopsy report would reveal she'd been hit around seven times in the back of the head with something like a crowbar or a tire iron. Um, And they can tell, immediately they could tell just because she had been found by her Cadillac that was uh-huh. also in the driveway and the Cadillac had the spray patterns of, you know. Oh, something going back and forth. Right. Oh, that is so disturbing. She also had defensive wounds on her hands oh. and there were no signs of sexual assault. Uh-huh. But even without the autopsy report, it was obvious to police on the scene that Christine's death couldn't have come from some sort of accidental fall. There was brain matter coming out of the back of her head. Like there was uh, no way for that to have been an accident. Yeah. There was no forcible entry also, Mm -hmm. and there was nothing in the house that had been stolen or missing. Yeah. Also, her husband Peter was acting like a total weird ass. So at first, you know, he's pacing around the garage and he demands the police take Christine to the hospital because probably she could have an operation and maybe she's not dead. Mm -hmm. And the police are like, obviously... She's completely dead. We've taken the pulse. There's no, yeah. like, we're not going to remove her right away because this is a crime scene. Right, right, he's right. Like, well, maybe you didn't take the pulse correctly, you know. That's understandable. Right, because sometimes people just act, you never know how you're going to act when yeah. you're faced with the most horrific thing that you can imagine, right? Yeah, I mean, I've never even seen a body like that, let alone, the, you know, my wife, a person I love, someone I know intimately. It's right. just like, you're going to be short circuit or right. whatever. And, you know, after police refused to move the body, they kind of went outside, they're talking. And what they did notice after that is Peter was loudly talking about different theories about how he thought Christine had slipped in the garage. So he's not talking directly to police, uh-huh. but he's definitely within earshot positioning himself to like make different points about, oh, well, she could have done this. She could have fallen here. She could have fallen there. She could uh-huh. have fallen there. So he's thinking he's still pitching this idea right that this whole thing was an accident well i mean that again in retrospect seems suspicious but at the time it's like i mean he's just trying to rationalize yeah you don't want to think about someone doing that to your wife right totally and i think what what the police were noticing more than anything was just a lack of emotion Mm -hmm. so it was more practical get her to the hospital okay well you're not going to take her out of here fine let's talk about what happened but he there was no mourning yeah you know there was Mm -hmm. no crying there were no tears there was no you know reflection it was 
technically explaining to different people about what could have happened. Okay. And I think that was the red flag for people. Yeah. But again, you don't know. You a lot know? of people, I mean, having a repressive emotional man around who's like, we'll be back at 945. See everyone, I'm here at 945 and all, all that. It's like, that's in the realm of a human being that I understand. I you think know? you're totally right about that. Yeah. I love being right. <laughs> so in a situation like this, it made the most sense to try and pull Peter down to the station just to talk to him. Just because, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking about something, there's no break in, there's nothing missing. You know, there doesn't seem to be much of a motive. It makes sense to talk to him and try to see what he knows. Mm-hmm. So Peter passes Andrea along to his cousin, Stephen. Andrea would stay with Steven for most of this time. Sorry, Andrea is the adult mother of some of these teenagers. No, no, Andrea is the three-year-old child. Andrea is the three-year-old child. That's Christine and Peter's kid. Sorry. That's okay. okay. So Peter passed Andrea along to his cousin Steven and went with Superintendent Taggart to the police station for this one-on-one talk. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, onto this, on his way to the station, all Peter really talked about was his airtight alibi. So he just keeps saying, well, I was at the mall and I was yeah. at the mall all day and I, I have all the, you know, everyone can tell you I was at the mall. I don't know why you want to take me down to the station. Yeah. And then when they get to the station, Peter starts a different track. Peter just flips and he's irate that police aren't out there trying to catch the killer. Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that just minutes before he had been mad that no one was taking his wife to the hospital for an operation to fix her accident, Mm -hmm. now he's saying, why are you you focusing on me? Go find the killer. But he settles down and he sits down to talk with detectives, although he does have something to say. He says, I am not some black-jacketed motorcycle punk. I may be wearing casual clothes, but I'm a well-educated man worth $400,000. Don't treat me like a common criminal. Show me some respect. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. But they do. They sit down. You know, they talk frankly. Peter doesn't even call a lawyer at this point. Mm -hmm. He speaks to police and tries to kind of say everything that he knows. And then Tegart questioned Peter until about 3.30 in the morning that night and then drove him home to drop him off at the empty house. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, Peter did lawyer up the very next day. Mm-hmm. So as he had mentioned several times to the police, he did have a pretty ironclad alibi with witnesses. But... Of course. He also had a $1 million life insurance policy out on Christine. Mm. And mm-hmm. he had a secret lover. Mm-hmm. So basically, the civil lawyer was like, I believe you that you didn't kill Christine. But you have a bad marriage, a lover, a huge life insurance policy. (laughs) So you need to get a criminal lawyer like yesterday. Yeah. Peter, for himself, wasn't freaked about the cops, but he did think the insurance company would try to frame him so they didn't have to pay. You know, he thought maybe the insurance company would be the ones pushing that narrative. Yeah, yeah. So he retained this prominent lawyer, Joseph B. Pomerant, for $15,000. Now, the first real break in the case came just a few days after Christine's death. Peter's best friend, Chava Salati, had dated a girl named Rita Jeffries a few years back. Although Chava was totally head over heels for Rita at the time, the relationship ended with Rita throwing a glass of Coke in Chava's face in the middle of a restaurant. So that was done. <laughs> oh, that's a classic move, man. I, I think maybe you and I should do that before we die. Uh, you just th- throw some 
a drink in my face in a public setting. I'll do that. That'd be That sounds tight. fun. Yeah. <laughs> just make a huge scene and storm off. Just one time before we die. All right. Well, at any rate, the day after Christine's death, Rita Jeffries walked into a Toronto police station and told investigators that Chaba Salati had a secret. Police detained Chaba that day, and by the evening... Chaba had signed a statement in front of a judge, mm-hmm. took a polygraph test, yeah, and had worked with Superintendent Tegart to figure out how to wear a wire. <laughs> are you? What was the statement? Are you going to get to say that later? I was going to say it later. Okay. okay. <laughs> Just like he knows something, the uh-huh. police think it's important, and now he's sealed up and contracted to wear wire what happened to this gaggle of moccasin girls they just are in a hotel and then go they freaked out no they can't stay in the house (laughs) yeah right i'm just wondering they like no they bounced they're fine nobody died from that group okay and did they um did they say like peter was with us the entire time there wasn't like oh he dropped us off and then picked us up yeah okay yeah everybody's okay with peter at this point. okay (laughs) all right so chaba salati Chaba Salati met Peter in Vienna in 1968, and a year later, he flew to Toronto on Peter's dime. Peter basically sponsored him to immigrate to Canada. Chaba was a small, polite guy in his late 20s at the time he met Peter. Mm -hmm. He was well-educated, and he was from a good Hungarian family who had established themselves in Vienna. He was also rumored to be a descendant of King Matias of Hungary. Oh, yeah. Let's definitely go with that story. I like that. Yeah, he's definitely uh, should have been king. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Chaba and Peter had kind of a big brother, little brother thing going on from the beginning. He took care of him, gave him advice, did things like that. Mm -hmm. So after he he landed in Toronto, Chaba lived with Peter and Christine for about a year and a half. Christine gave birth in 1970, and Chaba just lived with the couple. He did housework. He babysat Andrea Mm -hmm. and worked part-time in a desk job that Peter had gotten him. Is he Andrea's real dad? (laughs) Uh, I don't know. Don't talk. Don't (laughs) ask me questions. All right. So Peter, Uh as we're understanding right Mm -hmm. is kind of an asshole he's one of those guys like a generous guy who always keeps a tab yeah yeah you know Mm -hmm. he liked to have parties and then try to like calculate how much different people were drinking Uh uh and uh he would also use christine to fight with people so he had this way of basically instructing her to do the dirty work of confrontation for him (sighs) that's gross like what what do you mean by that exactly well like for instance in the end of the, like towards the end of Chaba living in their home. Yeah. Peter got pissed because Chaba decided to save some money and buy himself a car. And when it wasn't like a super nice car, uh-huh. but it was just a car. Yeah. And when he, Peter saw that all of a sudden he feels like, Oh, that money should have gone to me. So he didn't ask for the money up front or anything like that. But when he saw Chaba buy a car, he's how, how are you buying a car? You should be giving me all your money. Right. Right. Like he should have been paying rent this whole time or something. Right. When he had never asked him, mm-hmm. but Peter didn't tell Chaba that Peter told Christine to tell Chaba. That, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he kind of forced Christine to tell Chaba to start contributing more cash to the household or leave. Uh-huh. So Chaba ended up moving out. He decided to go. 
he lost the part-time desk job that he had gotten through Peter. Peter kind of got him fired. And then he started delivering pizzas. So that's where he ended up. And the friends all drifted apart. Wow. From King to Pizza Hut. Mm -hmm. So years passed. Actually, it's called Mr. Pizza. Uh, (laughs) Years passed. And Peter and Chaba still kept in touch, mostly so Chaba could help Peter with occasional scammy real estate stuff. Mm -hmm. So Peter had this thing that he did with Chaba, which was essentially if he had a bid in on a property that he wanted to develop and it wasn't moving towards his direction, Mm -hmm. he would go visit Chaba and he would write Chaba a $10,000 check which I guess in real estate at the time was like enough to put in a bid if you could. Okay. Right. So you write him a $10,000 check and tell him to go put a bid on the same property for less money. Mm -hmm. So it would look like Peter's bid was above. Was really good. Yeah. Right. right. Mm -hmm. So they would do that a lot to try to nudge deals Peter's direction. Yeah. But other than that, that's the extent of their relationship besides some some hangout time. And Chaba just chugged along. He entered his 30s as a night manager of Mr. Pizza. He briefly dated Rita Jeffries and then later went on to date Peter's maid Gigi. But he didn't really make any climbs in life. Got it. Reminds me of a certain co-host of a certain Muriel's Murders podcast I might know. <laughs> what? The guy... <laughs> Who <laughs> just flatlines? You didn't flatline. You're I'm gonna, gorgeous. I, I know Stop. I'm gorgeous. I'm going to be the the sexiest pizza delivery man in all of Los Angeles. How here. could you be flatlining when you grow your hair that long? <laughs> all right, we're going to yeah. keep going. This all is right. not about you. <laughs> Muriel's murder. <laughs> all right, so now with Chaba in his pocket mm-hmm. and other neighbors and friends of the Dimitaris coming forward with information, Superintendent Taggart began to piece together a picture of the Dimitaris marriage. So Peter Dimitaris had a reputation with being aggressive with women he dated. He was openly jealous and he was abusive and people knew. Mm. One time he dragged Christine by her hair to an incinerator in their hallway and tried to force her to burn a box of keepsakes and photos because he thought he, she was cheating on him. Like he's a total monster yeah, that's, asshole. That's just the worst thing ever. <laughs> Friends remember that before the Dimitaris were married and Peter was on a trip to Vienna, Christine had an affair with a soccer player. When Peter found out, he beat her really badly. She ran to a friend's house. She had, you know, black eye, bloody mm-hmm, lip. Mm-hmm. And she told her friends, she was really public about a lot of this stuff. She says, I'm going to break things out with Peter. We're not going to do it. Uh-huh. But just a short while later, they married at City Hall. Mm. So they squashed it and they kept going. Yeah. After Andrea was born, Peter, of course, was convinced that she wasn't his daughter. Even one time at a party, Peter told his father-in-law, so Christine's dad, mm. that when he dies, all of his money will go to his dog and then his daughter. And then if anything was left after all of that, it would go to his wife. That's like one of his great party jokes. That's hilarious. They're like, do you think you're going to die before your dog dies? Maybe. So that's kind of the nature of this marriage. Uh-huh. In the spring of 1973, the same year that Christine was murdered, Peter and Christine flew to Mexico for a vacation and they fought the entire plane ride down, according to witnesses. Peter was 
pissy to Christine the entire trip. He threw a screaming tantrum over a $4 overcharge on a restaurant bill, causing a friend of his to threaten to punch him in the face. Uh, it was like this horrible hate vacation. Was he also really fun sometimes? I mean, he sounds like a bummer all the time. Was he literally all sometimes just these horrible maniacs that like, I don't know, rise to the biggest heights of their personal accomplishments or whatever are also like, but when he was fun, man, the guy knew how to really be charming. I mean, he was wealthy and he was generous, you know, even though he kept tabs and he yeah. threw parties and he was successful, you know, I mean, I don't know. Was he popular? They had friends for uh-huh. sure. I mean, he was uh-huh. well known. Uh-huh. I just think, you know, people like assholes. <laughs> yeah. Right. right, right. I, I feel like that's true. For, yeah. It's kind of a, not a great guy, but yeah. I mean, he also had friends like international friends and people he knew through so many phases of his life. And he had been through so much up to this point. Yeah. You know, he knew a lot of people. Yeah, right, right, right. So after this disastrous vacation, Peter decides to rekindle a romance with an old flame from Vienna. This is another model named Marina. Mm-hmm. So they start writing letters back and forth and they decide to meet in Toronto for a staycation together, some sort mm-hmm. of liaison. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Peter takes off to Toronto and Christine gets a bug in her bonnet she starts looking through his stuff and he she finds the sexy letters between peter and marina Mm -hmm. so she's understandably upset she flips out right so she meets with a divorce lawyer and she started talking she told several people that peter had tried to kill her by pushing her in front of a bus one time oh my god and that she knew enough about his shady business practices (sighs) to put him away for 15 years yeah uh, so she's like really letting all the cats out of the bag. And this is stuff she's telling like her neighbor. You yeah. Know? She's yeah. just like, this is what's going on, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Here's the letters, you know? Yeah. So Peter returns from the secret vacation with Marina, comes back to the house and has this massive blowout fight with Christine. But surprisingly, after this big blowout fight, things went quiet. Both Christine and Peter just dropped it. Uh-huh. Now, Peter's cousin Stephen was a marriage counselor by trade, and he later said that he gave Christine some advice at the time. He told her that she had to be a friend in order to make a friend. So he was saying, I think you need to chill out, let Peter be Peter, and (laughs) recommended that she behave more like a traditional wife, like someone more from their traditional maybe European background, but someone more traditional. Oh my God. It must've been so easy to be a marriage counselor back in the day. I know. I was like, freaking yikes, man. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be a friend to make your friend. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's like, love is the only thing that will turn an enemy into a friend. It's just like, you just say stupid platitudes. And then like, People are like, I think he should be a marriage counselor. Be more traditional. (laughs) So after talking with all these friends and Mm -hmm. relatives and learning about all this stuff, police are absolutely zeroing in on Peter, right? And they decide to tap his phone. And the phone conversations were really interesting because Peter, despite warnings from his lawyers, compulsively talked about the case. But almost as if he thought his phone was being bugged. Mm-hmm. Like he only talked about his innocence and theories as to what happened, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. So any sort of pitch that he had that could make it seem like he didn't do it. 
<laughs> just making sure that it gets on the record. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, about a week later, on the evening of Christine's funeral, Chaba walked into the funeral home to see his old friend and pay his respects yeah. while wearing a respectable dark suit and a wire. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there are several transcribed conversations that are in this book, and none of them are very explosive. Nothing was really concrete, and because they spoke in Hungarian, some of the meaning behind what they said was muddy, but I will give you an example of how these conversations go, and yeah. you, can, you can draw your own conclusions. All right. So they start off, they take a walk, they go outside, and Chaba starts telling Peter that police had searched his apartment and they'd found papers in relation to some of their real estate scammy things, mm-hmm. right? Um, so after they found these papers, Chaba says, now they want me to take a polygraph test and I don't know what to do. And Peter immediately out of the gate just explodes. He's like, for God's sake, don't do that. I'll pay for a lawyer. You can't take a test. You're the only one who knows. All right. Right? All right. Then a car goes by, like you're missing pieces of it. Uh A little snippet comes out, and the quote is from Peter. He says, but it was done in such a terribly primitive and barbarian way. And then it cuts off again, so you don't hear anything. There's another truck going by. Classic. And then the whole conversation ends with this exchange. So Chaba says, is Steven out of the game? Peter says, yes. Chaba, how? Peter, pardon? Chaba, how? Peter, because there is no third person involved. Chaba, how could it be that there is no third person involved? Peter, he doesn't exist. Chaba, but you told me that, Peter, I don't know him. Chaba, you don't know him? Peter, that is, he doesn't exist because he is not here. Chaba, well, how in the hell? Peter, yes, there is no such person. So you can see it's a little Uh like who's on first, right? (laughs) (laughs) Just a classic sketch comedy bit. Hold on. So, so sorry. Has there been a Steven up until this point? Steven's the, uh, the cousin. Oh, the marriage counselor. Yeah. Boy, you better be paying attention. I I think I thought I was. My bad. Okay, so Steven is <laughs> no longer a real person. Uh, he's saying he's out of the game. Uh huh. So it, I think what he's saying mm. is Steven is not involved. Right. But Chaba thinks he is. Chaba's like, what about Steven? Is he in or out? And he's like, okay. he's, he's out. Because so they I, could. But you said come to my own conclusions. Yeah. So obviously the first thing is like they're talking about killing her, right? Yeah, Barbaric right. ways right. and all this stuff. And you're the only one who knows. Mm-hmm. But it might not be. They could be talking about business shenanigans. Yeah. And there's this person that doesn't exist. We don't know what that's about, right? Mm-hmm. Some sort of odd third mystery person, right? Mm. All right. So... It's not like cops could come in and swoop in and grab him based on this information, (laughs) right? But something is definitely up. Yeah. A little scheming. What a hilariously like stereotypical compromised wire taping. You know, with the, with the, the, uh, the 
garbage truck going oh, by yeah, right yeah. when the really important information yeah, is right. and that part's garbled yeah right it's very like what espionage you know whatever oh my god so that evening on july 23rd 1973 mm-hmm. christine was buried and her chiropractor gave the eulogy Chaba continued to wear a wire during his meetings with Peter, and Peter continued to hint at some unknown person involved in Christine's death. Basically, most of the conversations are like this, where mm-hmm. they're getting a little bit of information with a lot of nothingness, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But they continue to do it over time. Peter developed stress rashes. Superintendent oh. Taggart antagonized Peter. He would show up to the house kind of poking around. He antagonized Peter's lawyers. And he continued to question Peter until he gathered enough circumstantial evidence and vague taped conversations about a third man mm-hmm. to finally arrest him. Wow. And they don't have any other suspects. There was what no about other suspects. What about uh, evidence at the scene of the crime? No fingerprints, no footprints, Nothing. no, no fingerprints, no footprints. blood trails a block away. No murder weapon. Nothing. No person that saw a weird car speed off. Nothing. They don't have anything. And Andrea is three years old and in the room. So that's kind of old enough to like maybe have heard something or she like. She was just a little too little. And yeah. Christine mostly spoke to her in German. Mm-hmm. And so she really had a hard time talking to investigators about like using her language to talk to them about what she saw. And Peter took the dog with him apparently so that it wouldn't bark when something went down. All we know is that he aggressively took the dog. Yeah. So Taggart arrested Peter on August 17th, about a month after Christine's death, and charged him with her murder. Peter posted bail, and he was released six days later. And on the outside, Peter spent every interaction with neighbors and friends trying to convince them of his innocence, adamant that police had the wrong guy. And he kind of had a point. Mm-hmm. So at the time, the greater Toronto area, right, which I said includes Mississauga, enjoyed a lower murder rate than other cities its size. Mm -hmm. In 1972, Toronto had 41 murders compared with Montreal's 92 murders. And the difference is even starker across the border with the U.S. with 413 murders in Philadelphia and 615 murders in Detroit that same year. So you see the murder rate is very low. Mm -hmm. However, between 1972 In 1973, there was a rash of violent crimes against women in the small suburban town of Mississauga, where the Demeters lived just west of Toronto. All right. Like what? Well, according to a 1974 Canadian Champion article, in total, there were five unsolved murders of women in Mississauga around the time of Christine's death. There was 22-year-old Janice Montgomery. She was found shot in the head in a field in September of 1972. Adele Komorowski, she was a graduate student found strangled in the woods outside of McMaster University in May of 1973. Then we have 33-year-old Christine Demeter, who was found bludgeoned in July 1973. Then 17-year-old Pauline Dudley's decomposed body was found in a field with a fractured jaw in August of 1973. So it's just a month after Christine. Yeah. College freshman Constance Dickey was found strangled in the woods about three quarters of a mile from the back basement entrance of the uh, Demeter home. Um, and they found her in early September of 1973. And then finally, high school student Nada Novak 
was abducted in October of 1973, and her body was found near the Credit River in 1974. And all of those things were unsolved? All of them were unsolved. Man, R.I.P. Yeah. Uh, Also, in 1973, there were two outstanding instances of public violence that exposed some shocking Toronto underworld things. On Friday, August 10th, 1973, so that's a few weeks after Christine's murder. Yeah. This is about a 25-minute drive from Mississauga in the town of Burlington, Ontario, which is still within the greater Toronto area. Uh Uh-huh. The Walkinshaws, who were a retired middle-class suburban couple, were chilling at their house and they were watching the news when their garage exploded. So they get up, they run outside, they see their garage engulfed in 20-foot flames, and out of the corner of their eye, they catch a man who is basically a fireball sprinting away from the house. So, Meaning he was on fire. Yes. Yeah. So instead of putting out his flaming clothes on the grass, which neighbors were calling out saying, roll, you know, stop, yeah. drop and roll. He ran over to his car, jumped in and then drove off in the opposite direction of the nearest hospital. Yeah. The ma- trying to get the hell out of there. Right. So the man ended up driving 30 miles to a hospital in Toronto where he arrived with burns on 25% of his bodies, his arms and hands basically in shreds. Oof. There was, uh, flesh like stuck to the seat and ah, stuck to the dashboard. Oh God. Ugh. And 30 year old Joe DiNardo wouldn't say why he torched the garage and he would only repeat his name, mm-hmm. his rank and his serial number like someone captured. Huh. Joe DiNardo had come to the UK as a refugee from Hungary in 1956 as many people did. The UK? Yes, the UK. Is Canada? Oh, you're just saying, Okay. This happened in Canada, but okay, you're going back. Sorry. <laughs> Canada is not a part of the UK. Well, I had to double check. I really wasn't sure. I don't know who's united and what's a kingdom. Well, you got to stop. All right. So Joe had come to the UK as a yeah. refugee from Hungary in 1956 at the age of 13. So he was pretty young. Yeah. He was already well over six feet tall. So instead of being adopted or fostered out or put into an orphanage, he basically slipped under the radar and posed as an adult. Mm -hmm. So he, as an adult, then immigrated to British Columbia Mm -hmm. and the next... Which is in Canada. I do right. know that. So he immigrated to British Columbia to do some <laughs> apple picking for work. Uh-huh. And then the next year he eventually landed in Ontario. Right. And that's where he started crime time. So he started doing a lot of crime and developed a massive rap sheet. Uh-huh. Joe Donardo was also a fantastic boxer. He was six foot four and 220 pounds. So the other way he made money was charging $1,000 a pop to throw fights. He'd go in the ring and then just like take the fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He also broke arms and legs for cash, charging between $300 and $1,000 per pop. So that's that dude. Right. And his best friend in Canada in the whole wide world was a man named Laszlo Eper. So 34-year-old Laszlo Eper was Hungarian-born and had come to Canada as a refugee in 1957, so around Mm -hmm. the same time as everybody else. But he was a little older. He came at the age of 18. 
he had a super long rap sheet as mostly like petty theft, burglary, car theft, things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, he was pretty prolific and he averaged about four convictions a year, which is a lot of convictions. Mm -hmm. uh, he averaged about four convictions a year until 1967. It's not that many, Mira. It's just one a season. <laughs> well, you know? in terms of like actually serving the sentence like getting convicted serving like he was literally yeah he's just you getting know, out of jail and then committing a crime the day after he got out of jail it's just when the weather changes okay he feels like he needs to go no i mean he's in he was in prison i mean he was probably out of prison for five days right he's like, <laughs> it's like hey pumpkin lattes are back at starbucks is it that time it is that time of the year let's go get let's go get convicted so he was averaging about four convictions a year until 1967 when he was convicted of attempted murder of a police officer and sentenced to life in prison. Yikes. All right. Six years into his sentence, he escaped. Laszlo jumped ship in May of 1973, two months before Christine Dimiter was murdered. Mm -hmm. He used a smuggled gun to take a prison guard hostage, forced him to drive his own car to Ottawa, hitchhiked, and then when he ran out of gas, he carjacked someone for their brown Chevrolet, and that all landed him a spot on the Canadian Royal Mounted Police's most wanted list. <laughs> uh, then Laszlo Eper drove down to Toronto, mm -hmm. and this man drove that Chevy around with the same license plate that he had stolen for three months without getting caught, but then he eventually got caught for driving like an asshole. Okay, all right. So on August 29th, 1973, Police saw a brown Chevrolet making an illegal left-hand turn. The cop went to pull the Chevy over, and the Chevy just takes off the wrong way up a one-way street, just swerving side to side. Yeah. So it attracts enough attention that another random cop that was just there nearby in their car saw the commotion, and the two police cars were able to hem the brown Chevy in. But when they hem the brown Chevy in, the driver jumps off, and he, and he takes off on foot with the police running behind him. So the driver slows as he's running and jams his ha hands into his waistband. And then he turned with a gun and fired a 38 revolver at police. The police chasing him all dove for cover and dropped to the ground. But in his attempt at shooting at officers, the man stumbled and fell, landing on his butt with his legs out in front of him. So again, he pulls the gun out and attempted to shoot from a sitting position. And while he was doing that, a constable that was hiding behind a parked car about 45 feet away pops out and shoots the man in the face, mm -hmm. ending the standoff. Yeah, killing him. Right. So the man had a stolen ID on him and was living in a basement in Little Hungary under a fake name. Uh, eventually, he was identified by his fingerprints as Laszlo Eper. Mm -hmm. So Superintendent Taggart, having just arrested Peter Dimiter about a week prior, headed over to this spot in Toronto to check out the Laszlo Eper case just on a hunch. Mm hmm the little basement apartment where Eper had spent the last three months of his life was a dirty room with a little private bathroom and then he used a communal kitchen with other people in the house. In his room, Eper had three handguns. Four, including the 38 he had on him when he died. Mm -hmm. So he had three handguns and a sawed-off semi-automatic rifle with a homemade silencer attached and a suitcase full of ammunition for all the guns. 
The room was packed with jewelry. He had multiple ski masks. And he also had on the wall a list of all Metro police cars and their license plate numbers hmm. next to a radio that he had stolen tuned to the frequency uh, that the police used, the police frequency. So he could hear all the calls they were going on, what they were saying. Yeah. He also had $400 cash stuffed under the mattress. But the weird thing was is police at this point knew that he had robbed a bank in Toronto in May around the time he escaped. Yeah. And he had robbed this bank in broad daylight, stole $13,000 and escaped on a bicycle. <laughs> Damn. That is Canadian. Yeah, right. But they were like, he's living in the shithole yeah. and he's got all this stuff, but it's like, where's the cash? It was odd to them that they were, he was missing all that cash. Mm -hmm. However, Tegart was much more into what else Eper had been up to. Eper was thought to be loosely connected to what the police called the Hungarian Mafia, which was a kind of small-time collective, like crime collective. It uh -huh. was based out of Little Hungary. Somewhat organized, but not exactly powerful. Right, or maybe not known, or maybe, mm -hmm. you know, they're not really sure exactly what it is, but mm -hmm. they called it the Hungarian Mafia. All right. The police called it that. The Hungarians themselves were not Don't talk to anybody. Themselves. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're not talking to anybody. So they have a hunch. That's what they call it. There's mm -hmm. some connection with underground crime activity, right? Right. So Tegart gets out of Eper's house and he starts walking around the neighborhood trying to dig some dirt up on Eper. Mm -hmm. But the best that he could come up with is that everyone loved him. The neighborhood the neighborhood kids were crazy about him. He'd take carloads of them to the movies on the weekends and mm -hmm. pay for their tickets and their snacks. See, this is what I'm talking about. The psychos that also have the like neighborhood kids who love him kind right. of thing. Right. He would take them out and the kids were like, yeah, he was so great. Uh -huh. He would just take us to the movies and they'd tell us about how many cops he was going to kill. <laughs> we used to talk about that a lot, you know. They yeah. were like, oh, bedtime stories or whatever. Yeah. And Eper's roommates thought he was great too. I was he ask was about that. he was really handy. Mm -hmm. So he was generous. He would hang out. If the TV broke, he would fix it. He was mm -hmm. really good with electronics and stuff like that. So he would help fix things around the house and keep things running. You know. Mm -hmm. So after interviewing all these people and sensing his hunch was taking him nowhere, Tiger went back to the room that Eper rented for fifteen dollars a week to see if he could find anything else, anything that might point him towards the Dimitar case. In Eper's desk, Tegert found a drawer full of newspaper clippings of prominent Toronto people, officials, like high-ranking businessmen and stuff. Mm -hmm. Next to the clippings, Tegert found a notebook of phone numbers of arms dealers and explosive stealers. And then next to the notebook was a small piece of scrap paper. He picked it up. On one side of the scrap paper read... Peter Demeter, Eden ACR Associates. And on the other side read, Police Superintendent William Taggart. <laughs> I like how you called it a hunch. It's like he's these it's like they're both Hungarian. They must be they must be in it together. Uh, against me. Okay. <laughs> so Nobody knows exactly what that means, but that's evidence that's collected. Okay. 
So we're going to go back to Peter. So hold on real quick. What happened to the guy who burned himself up and ran away? Is he, you just wanted to tell that story. Did we ever figure out why he bombed that garage? All you have to know right now, we're going to tell this story in two parts. Okay. So, so you're going to make me and all of our listeners wait until next week to figure out what the hell is going on with that. All you need to know bombing. is right now. Yeah. There's a lot of crazy shit going down in Mississauga, right? It's like right now in the greater Toronto area, at the time that Christine died, there is more crime going on than like ever happens. Mm -hmm. And it is all super shady and crazy. Got it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going back to Peter Demeter, right? He was released about six days after his arrest, remember? And right around the time of Laszlo Eper's shooting, Peter was sitting alone in his empty Mississauga house being monitored by police and awaiting the preliminary hearing scheduled for January. Mm-hmm. And that's the hearing that weighs all the evidence to decide whether or not he's going to go to trial. Sure. So Peter was labeled as a wife killer in the international press. Most of his friends, whether they were in Canada or abroad, wouldn't take his phone calls. And uh, so he was very lonely, right? The house itself was was filthy because of his reputation. No cleaners would come. And as a rule, generally, Peter didn't clean, right? Where's his daughter? She's with the cousin. Okay. So Andrea is with Steven. Okay. And Peter is alone in a dirty house. He can't hire any domestic help. And no one will take his calls. No one will talk to him. Even though he has alibis, he's like wasn't at the house when it happened. And there's no real proof. They're just. I think no that when him? there's no forced entry, there's nothing stolen, mm. there's no scrap of any other piece of evidence pointing to some sort of describable outside force. It seems like he hired someone to kill her. Yeah. That's like, All right. I mean, I think people are guessing. Plus you have the insurance policy. You have yeah. the lover. It was really publicly known that Peter was messing around with Marina. Uh-huh. So people knew his okay. friends know he's an asshole. Yeah. You know, they were just fine with it up to a certain point. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, it's all fun and games until someone actually gets murdered. He did, however, find the energy to clean out something. He cleaned out all of Christine's clothes and belongings. Mm-hmm. So, well, it might just r- remind him of his dead wife, and that might be too hurtful. Yeah, like a month afterwards, <laughs> two months afterwards. <laughs> I don't know. I think, if, but that's the thing is that mm-hmm. we don't know what we do. Right. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. all I'm saying. I mean, I do personally know that if I murdered you, I would throw away all your stuff. The next right. Day. But if you didn't murder me, I would throw you. I'd wait a month. No, I'd wait a month. I always hated this lamp. How dare you? All right. But like I said, you know, mm-hmm. he was pretty lonely. No one was really talking to him. However, he did find the time to meet with Chaba at Mr. Pizza one last time before the, the trial in the fall. Mm-hmm. On January 28th, 1974, Peter Demeter entered a courtroom in the Provincial Court of Ontario for his preliminary hearing to find out whether there was enough evidence to try him for the murder of his wife, Christine. When Peter walked in to see his old buddy Chaba at the front of the line of people submitting evidence against him, (laughs) according to witnesses, his butthole sucked up into his body. (laughs) 37 witnesses all (laughs) confirmed that his butthole went to the top of his head. Straight into his throat. So this is how Chaba came to be in the courtroom for the prosecution. Mm -hmm. 
In the spring of 1973, while Christine and Peter's marriage was unraveling, Chaba was falling in love with the beautiful and classy Rita Jeffries. One night, while having drinks at the Hyatt Regency Hotel, Chaba was trying to brag on himself to impress Rita. And, you know, he, he, he was saying, you know, I know I'm out here delivering pizzas, whatever, whatever. But believe me, baby, I'm going to strike it rich someday. Mm-hmm especially if I help my loaded friend Peter murder his wife. (laughs) So (laughs) that shouldn't be funny. I mean, it's just like, that's what he bragged to her about. And of course, for Rita, that stuck out in her mind. (laughs) Yeah, I would hope so. So after their breakup, they split ways. But after Christine's murder, Rita remembered her conversation with Chaba earlier that year. Mm -hmm. And she went straight to police she told him, you know, go look into Chaba. And this is what Chaba had to say. Yeah. According to Chaba, he met Peter in Vienna in 1968, right after he'd been discharged from the army. So he and Peter struck up a quick friendship with Peter acting almost as a mentor. Chaba said one of the first pieces of advice Peter gave him was that running business in Canada was great because you have ways to work around issues. Like if you want to develop a piece of land and someone won't sell it to you, you can get someone to run them over with a car. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) they teach that (laughs) to us in American schools about Canada as well. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah. So Peter, who was newlywed and loving the freewheeling life of a Toronto businessman, had one little problem. He told Chaba that he needed to kill someone close to him and he wasn't sure how to make it happen. So he he wanted Chava's help. Mm-hmm. Now, Peter was dropping hints like crazy about this mystery person. And then finally, Chava was like, are you trying to kill your wife? <laughs> and Peter said, you know, oh, no, man, you must be joking. Anyway, you think I can reroute the exhaust in my car so if someone like my wife drives it, they asphyxiate? And Chavo was all, yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that's what Chavo said was the start of their friendship. And that was back in like years before all of this. This is 1968, the year after he got married. Not even a full year after he got married. And like five years before he actually kills him. Yes. So Chavo knows all this, and this is way before he Fool, let me finish this thing. I was thinking Chaba was kind of cool, man. This guy also sucks. Well, listen to this. All right. Chaba says, you know, that was the start of our friendship, and we would spend the next five years discussing different ways to kill Christine. This is while he was living with them, while he was babysitting Andrea the whole time. So Hold on. Can I just say something? Because I feel myself getting angry. What? Hold on. Can we believe this testimony from Chaba right now, or is this all just... Well, just let me finish. Because <laughs> You're just... trying to jump in. How about this? Yeah. Yes, you can believe it. You can believe the testimony, Yeah. and he never had any inconsistencies when he said that this is what happened. So he was cross-examined really heavily, Yeah. and people said what you said. You know, you're shady, you're a Benedict Arnold, you're a turncoat, or whatever. I'm using weird words. Like you're a... <laughs> I definitely didn't say No, well, you know what I mean? Like, you're... you're, you're you shouldn't be trusted because look at you. You were conspiring and you betrayed mm-hmm. Christine and now you're betraying Peter. You know, that's your personality. 
they definitely brought all that to the table, but the problem is when they cross-examined him, yeah. he just made no mistakes. Yeah. Like he had the timeline down perfect. It just really, it was convincing that he was telling the truth. Yeah, he's just a fucking horrible jerk who murdered Christine. All right, no. Okay, <laughs> I hate him. Okay, great. I'm getting very So upset. anyway, these were some of the possible plans, according to Chaba, that he discussed over the last five years. All right. Push her off a roof. Push her down the stairs, hit her in the head in the street, then hit her with a car, and then pretend she ran out to catch their dog. Set her on fire in the garage, cut the brakes, electrocute her while she was swimming in the swimming pool, and then the last one was fake robbery gone bad in which Chaba would shoot both Christine and Peter, but just shoot Peter a little less. And Chaba every time was like, none of these ideas are good and I'm not doing it. So that was basically, he would constantly say, yeah. that won't work because of X. Uh-huh, we can't uh-huh. do this because of X. We can't do this because of X, right? Right. But he's also saying, but I'm down as soon as we come up with this a solid plan. It's like every time Peter talks to him, he's like, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, won't work. Right. Right? Yeah. Chaba then added that two days before Christine's murder, Peter called him to ask if he could get their maid, Gigi, who was dating at the time, if he could get Gigi out of the house on the evening of July 18th. So on the phone, Chaba didn't really get what Peter was talking about. He said he couldn't guarantee anything. I don't know if I can get Gigi out of the house. And Peter gets mad. And he says, you know, if you don't get the maid out of this house, then I'm going to have to forfeit the $10,000 I paid my guy. Chaba tells the judge, Peter said he had just received a phone call from a certain man who had told him the deal was one, not two. One, not two. So meaning that like if the maid is in the house, I'm not coming over because I'm not going to kill the maid and Christine for $10,000. I'm just Uh going to keep your money. God damn, that's cheap. So that's what, that's what. Chava is telling the judge, yeah. he says, I had this conversation and Peter was irate because he was pissed about having to lose $10,000 and was like, get Gigi out of the house because yeah. I'm just going to lose $10,000 if you want. Right. Not, I don't want to murder Gigi. Right, I right? get it. Yeah. And Chava was a surprise witness for the prosecution. So not only was Peter completely blindsided by Chava's testimony, his lawyers were like, God we were not prepared for this we were not prepared to this and peter is going to trial yeah and that's what we'll start off next week (sighs) but for those of us yes who think the trial part is boring nick yeah (laughs) i want you to know a little secret yeah the trial is only like a fraction of what happens next okay shit gets really crazy there are betrayals revenge a guy with a creepy mask named mr x there's a serial killer it's like everything man (laughs) it's everything man can i be real right now yeah just be really real with you yeah last night i've been working on this script all day yeah and at the very end of the night (laughs) i was like i'm gonna smoke a little joint and finish the script (laughs) and this whole time i've been reading it and just finding these things i was like what, <laughs> what, what is writing? that? And that was the last thing I wrote last night. I wrote a creepy mask guy with a creepy mask named Mr. X, a serial killer, like everything, man. <laughs> <laughs> when we 
we say thank you for listening to Muriel's Murders. We mean it. Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing and post-production. And this podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. When you sign up, you instantly unlock exclusive episodes. And you unlock the love of our hearts. We also draw and animate little bonus content cartoons for Muriel's Murders, which populate our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open. Plus, you can email us at Murders at gmail.com, and we love hearing from you. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can add this episode to a playlist of podcasts you think your friend should tune into. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Camp fire media and if you want more of us inside of your life find our non-murder podcast it's called hell in your 30s and uh check us out man we have like four years of episodes of us just hanging out so if you're just if you need that we've got you covered (laughs) all right everybody have a great week we'll see you next week i'm excited for this to be continued baby all right all right I'm Brian Husky. I'm bald. And I'm Charlie Sanders, and I'm also bald. And we host Bald Talk on the Campfire Media Network. Bald Talk is the podcast where two bald comedians talk to anyone bald about being bald. But this show isn't just for baldies, Brian. Harrows will love it, too. Bald Talk gets into vulnerability, vanity, insecurity, and self-acceptance, reminding us that we all have our respective bald spots. Not that bald spots are a bad thing. No way. I mean, my entire head is one big bald spot. It is one huge, beautiful bald spot, Charlie. Get Bald Talk on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, I I have like a little bit of hair, but not like you. Like you're really bald. I'm truly bald. Great. I mean, it's I'm great. balder I than it. you. You are balder than me. Only on Bald Talk. Campfire. <laughs>